from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. What is Jesus up to? Sometimes, if I'm honest, I wish that he would be less dangerous. Maybe even just a little bit more predictable. Especially when I read Luke. Luke has a way of telling the story about Jesus that just makes all of our expectations turn upside down, which is, it's not comforting. Because if there's one thing I've learned about being married and doing marriage counseling for people, it's this, that conflict often arises from unmet expectations. But the way Jesus speaks in Luke, he's always flipping them upside down. Here is Jesus again, telling a little story. That's innocent enough, isn't it? I mean, a story is just that. It's a story. Stories are nice, aren't they? I mean, can you think of anything more domestic and non-threatening than a story? Apparently not. You see, this story is a tale about two worshipers at the temple. Now, we could exchange some words here to make it understandable for us culturally. It might begin like this. There were two men in church. Pretty straightforward. The word church here helps us. It gives us a certain listening clue. It opens our imagination for what to expect. If they're in church, then there's a sense of decorum they probably are participating in. Maybe they've even come for the same purpose. Certainly these two different men have probably enacted some sense of filter over the behavior because it's a place for reverence. Isn't that right, church? A place for reverence? I remember when I was a boy, I used to sit in the back pew against the back wall of a little country church with about four or five other, as John, Jim Bell would call them, ring-tailed tutors. One of them was the youth leader's kid, and he was a real crack-up. And he brought the holy grail of novelty items with him to church, a whoopee cushion. And he made that whoopee cushion go off in Sunday school, but his, his parent didn't care because she was a bit of a cut-up too. She just made him promise not to use it at any inappropriate times. He got that whoopee cushion out during service. I got nervous. But he was just kind of holding it and smelling the odd rubber smell. 
And then it came time in the service for the offering. Now, something happened every Sunday at this church during offering. A head usher named Otis Wallace, a man I dearly loved before he passed, he would bring the offering up. Otis was a sweet character. He always wore suspenders. And whenever I'd see him, he'd, he'd open one breast of his jacket and it would say, Otis. And then he'd open the other side and it would say, Wallace. Otis had a funny way of speaking. He wasn't loud, but you could hear him when he said S words because he made a really loud whistle. And so he'd stand in front of the altar with the offering and he'd say a prayer. And he wasn't mic'd, so no one could hear him, but you could always hear his, his whistles. And we'd laugh at him in the back because we were evil children. <laughs> it got particularly quiet in between the S's of Otis's prayer. And I was caught off guard to hear it too. My friend crushed the whoopee cushion. And everybody's head jerked up from the prayers and I could see the pastor looking over Otis and then my friend's mom sitting halfway up the sanctuary turned around and said, for Christ's sake, boy, not in church. Church? It's a place for reverence. I think we can assume the two men are there for the same reasons and they're being reverent and they're not causing problems. But it's these two men's presence in church where the comparison truly ends because you see, one of them has a title, a well-known title. He is a Pharisee. And the other has another well-known title. He is a tax collector. Or as they called them in the old days, and maybe some of your Bibles refer to them as such, a publican, which to me is a very funny-sounding word, so I will say it again for my own amusement, publican. And I know, friends, that in this room there is probably a bias against Pharisees. I know that because you and I are in the same cultural situation. We live on this side of the New Testament. We've gone back and we looked over the pages of the Gospels and we've seen time after time that these people tend to be enemies of Jesus or Jesus' foils for his stories and, and parables. But we have to remember something profoundly important. For the people of God in this day, the Pharisees were the good guys. They wore the white hat in the story. They were upstanding. Some of the very first Christian followers of Jesus were Pharisees. These were people who followed the law. These were the people who kept their fingernails clean. They called their mamas on Sunday. They did all the right things. If I'm going to be crass about it, the Pharisee is exactly the person that you would want to have in your church. Listen to his prayer. God, thank you. Thank you that I, I've lived a righteous life. Thank you that, 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 that I fast and, and that I'm able to do the things you want me to do. There is no reason to think that the words of his prayer are false. He goes further. He even says, God, I've given my 10%. I'm telling you what, this is the guy that pastors want in their church. He even gives 10%. That's the gold standard. If we could get everyone here to give 10%, there would be no issue with our budget. He gives it, and he's faithful, and he fasts, and he follows the law. Here's the thing about this man. He has done all the right things 
He's paid his time, and he knows it too. We have to be careful. When we find ourselves following all the rules, doing the right things, paying our time, and also being aware of it. I was standing in a grocery store uh, aisle, a lane, I was trying to check out. There's a woman in front of me talking on her cell phone rather loudly. Now, I've encouraged you before, be careful what you say out loud. There are pastors in your community, and they listen, and then they preach sermons. So be careful. I heard her on the phone as I was looking at the tabloids, trying to act like I couldn't listen to what she was saying or couldn't hear her. And she said this, I'm so angry at my new young preacher. I got really interested then. He changed all the music at church. She said this then, I'm thinking of taking away my donation unless he changes the music have to be careful when we put in the time, when we've done all the right stuff, and we think we are in good with God, and we know it, because it tends to create in us a sense of entitlement, a sense of self-righteousness, or what Father Richard War would call ego-driven spirituality. There's the Pharisee over there praying. But over here on the other side of the church sanctuary is the tax collector. What do we say about tax collectors? Well, for starters, my friends, they, they were people who worked for the Roman government, siphoning money away from their own people to line the pockets of a pagan empire. Oh, and they also often lined their own pockets as well. These people were not well thought of, to say the least. In fact, These were not the kinds of people you'd want to come to church. They were seen as enemies or those on the fringes. Sometimes they were downright despised. I know as I say that to you now, you probably don't have a good feeling in your stomach because when I say the right kind of person for church, what should pop into all our minds is anybody and everybody's the right kind of person for church. There is no target. The target is the world, right? Rest assured, we have nicer ways of excluding. I was once at a church growth seminar. Everybody that works in church is interested in growth. That is just the reality. Frankly, it's because our society is a society based on a, on a story of infinite growth. That's another topic for another day. Nevertheless, I went to it, and it was put on by one of these uh, pastors of a megachurch. He started this church in his garage or something, and now it's got 20-some thousand people every Sunday. Uh, They're probably taking all the audio frequencies from other churches, you know. And everyone wants to know one thing. They just want to know one simple thing. How How do you get that big? How do you grow? And then he stopped talking about the Bible and and theological terms about the church, and he started using other phrases that came from the business world, like target audience and marketing. Immediately, I felt a little queasy and out of my element, because I never thought of the church as a business. And so then he began to say, you have to have a target audience to know how to get them in your door. 
everyone was curious who his target audience was. And so he pulled up in a transparency. You guys remember transparencies that you could shine up on the wall? He pulled a transparency picture of the target audience of their church. And it was a white male between the ages of 35 and 45. He had a polo shirt tucked into khakis, a very large cell phone clipped to his belt. I think there was a lanyard around his neck. All of it was meant to signify something. He, he, was, he was kind of a suburban, upwardly mobile person at a nice company. It said he had 2.3 kids. I don't know how you get a .3 of a kid, but that was a statistic. Of course, they had a nice house, a picket fence, and he was married to uh, Betty Crocker or somebody. The first thing I thought in my mind was this. Well, what about me? I'm a single man. How do I fit into your church? And then I thought less egotistically. I thought, what about people of color? What about people who don't make that much money? What about women? We find ways, people, we do, to think about who is in and would be good for us and who would not. Let's just say in this day and age that we're referring to, the tax collector would have been on the out list easily. Still, there's a difference between the two men in church on that day. The Pharisee prays. He's thankful for his righteousness and that he's not like a bunch of other people, adulterers. He's not like the rogues. I love it that he uses the word rogues. He, he isn't a scoundrel. And then, taking notice out of the corner of his eye of the tax collector, he even says, I'm really glad I'm not like the tax collector. I'm glad I, I'm not in a profession that hurts my people. Meanwhile, the tax collector is praying, and I'm convinced that he is unaware of the presence of the Pharisee. So busy is he crying and sobbing, the text tells us that he's actually beating his chest. He's thinking about all the things that he's done wrong, the ways that he hasn't lived up enough to who he's supposed to be. He's thought about his sin. And as he's crying and sobbing, and, there's not, and it's not pretty, he beats his breast, crying out to God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. So seriously, he takes his own moment before God. Have you ever been so worried and serious about your sin that when you went to church, you beat your chest and sobbed. Now, I want you to know something and note it well. He doesn't really ask for forgiveness and offer repentance. The tax collector isn't saying, I promise I will change my ways. He's not giving God a three-point plan. He's not bargaining. He is just declaring that he's a sinner. he's doing humbly before God and Jesus praises that man rather than the Pharisee he critiques the Pharisee do you see how absurd this is though absolutely absurd I mean the Pharisee isn't making this stuff up he is righteousness he really does the right things I believe him he gives 10% of his stuff away he is faithful, and he's really happy that he's not in the kind of work that would harm his own people. 
I guess the economy really is working for him. Yet, Jesus sides with the sinner, the con man, the financial parasite, the traitor, the cheat, the liar, or whatever word that you wouldn't label him with. Why? Why does Jesus side with such a man? I certainly think there's something about the fact that he's not hypocritical. There's nothing worse than somebody who's just blatantly hypocritical, is there? When somebody's so unaware of their blind spot and it's pretty obvious, it just rubs us wrong. I had a, a great Uncle Doc. He was a character. I could tell you stories about him that would go on days. He heard that I liked hip-hop music. In the era of time this was, the hip-hop of the day was pretty vulgar. And so he decided to sit me down and give me a lecture about vulgarity and speech. He told me that vulgarity was a sign of ignorance and stupidity. As soon as he said that, my dad rolled his eyes and goes, oh, come on, Doc. Because my dad knew the one truth about Doc, full of baloney. He continued on. He told me that whenever you talk like that, you sound stupid, so you better work on your vocabulary. Expand your vocabulary. In fact, for every one vulgar word, I needed to learn five non-vulgar words that meant the same thing. And he kept going on. And to be frank with you, it all sounded pretty smart to me. It made a lot of sense. So I'm jiving with what he is saying. He's helping me become a cultured man. Then, in the middle of his speech, his 20-something layabout son, who was up late for his shift at the bar, was crawling out of his bedroom. He walked into the living room. His dad said something to him. He said something smart-alecky to my Uncle Doc, and my Uncle Doc then took his cane, and he whacked him with a sentence full of the most wonderful obscenities you've ever heard in your life. Just fell out of his mouth. And my dad rolled his eyes more. The hypocrisy weakened the point. Why does Jesus side with the tax collector? The lesson here is simple. To be very, very careful with how you look at, assess, judge, or account for the life of other people. If for no other reason that it can make you miss your own misdeeds. But it's deeper than that too. You know, to be frank, the lesson here is that for the faithful, according to Jesus, must be so concerned first with their own hang-ups, with their own sins, with their own misgivings and misdeeds, that they can barely see other people's. Be so concerned with yourself and how you're falling short that you don't have time to worry yourself with how other people are falling short. I love the tradition of the Desert Fathers, and I'm going to steal a story Reverend Chambers told some time ago in a sermon. It was of a man named Abba Moses, and he's famously known for somebody who never wanted to judge another person because he was too busy working on his own sins. But he was called to be a part of a council to cast judgment on something that was done wrong or something like that. He didn't want to go, but he was called to do it. So he took a bucket, put a little hole in the bottom of the bucket and filled it with water, and he walked that way to the meeting. 
When he got there, people looked at him kind of strangely and wondered why he was carrying a bucket that clearly had a hole and water strewn behind him. Abba Moses, what are you doing? He said, you have asked me to come cast judgment on my brother when my sins have run behind me. Ain't no one got time for that. If you're seriously taking your own self to God and taking yourself into account before God. Here's the truth. We all have the same temptation. It's to go to church and hear a sermon and think, man, I wish so-and-so heard that. It's to read a book and think about the lesson that someone else could get from it. Sometimes it's to sit comfortably in our pew and look with judgment about someone else in the room, how they look, how they act, how they speak. Here's a temptation we all suffer from. Simply thinking that the way we understand it, the way we live it, is pretty okay, and others not so much. But the lesson from a story like this, from this dangerous story, is that when you stand before God, inside or outside the church, don't worry about other people. As the kids say, stay in your lane and deal honestly and humbly with God about your own heart.